Hi there, everyone. Apologies if this intro is a little bit loud. I am traveling around at the minute. We're building remote teams out in different parts of the country, the world. So I'm often in noisy places, but I'm here to intro the podcast, the LinkedIn Live even that I did with Justin, who is the CTO of Trusted Sec. There's loads to unpack in Justin's journey. He does APT, adversarial, full chain, red team type work. So we have a pretty low level and technical conversation about that. We also discuss Justin's journey into InfoSec and not just the highlights. Look, Justin's flying. He's the CTO of Trusted Sec. He's doing extremely well. He's killing it. But it hasn't always been like that for him. He struggled to get into the industry. He got lots of rejection, lots of knockbacks. And I want people listening to this to realize that success isn't linear. It's hard. It's worth fighting for. We're all in an amazing industry, an amazing space. So it's bound to be hard. Lots of people dream of doing and operating within this industry. So enough from me. I'll let you uh, listen to the episode and I hope you enjoy it. I hope you get lots of learnings and lots of benefits from it. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening again. Good, good. Listen, this is the smoothest start I've had to a LinkedIn Live, Justin. Normally, like, something goes wrong or the the, the Wi-Fi goes or something like that, but uh, we, we're doing okay. Have you, had a, you had a good week so far? Yeah, yeah. It's yeah, busy good. getting into Q4, but... Good. Yeah, do you know what? I've noticed a bit, particularly this week, of a bit of a bit of an uptick as well we've had a couple of we've had a couple of clients from last year that were very lively that have come back to life so i think we're i think we're on the on the road to on the road back to a bit of bit of maybe not a boom market but certainly a bit of a bit of an uptick it's one minute to the start time of the show i'm not i'm on a uk time so it's 10 o'clock here but i'll i'll just wait uh one minute have you got your dog with you today justin is your, is your dog with you yeah 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 they're all <laughs> running around the bag <laughs> Cool, cool. Okay, so we'll just wait a minute. Thank you for joining everyone. So welcome everyone that's here. So this is a live version of the Cyber Security Recruiter podcast, joined by Justin, who's the CTO of Trusted Sec. You okay, Justin? Yeah, good. Yep. So I've done you a little bit of a little bit of a mini introduction there, but I could never do it as well as you. So we'll just start off. Who are you, and uh, what have you been up to career-wise over over the years, my friend? Sure. Yeah. Currently, I'm the CTO at Trusted Sec. What that actually means is less CTO and more over the research we do here for offensive mm-hmm. and defensive purposes, and I'm over the the red team and some of the advanced testing services we do adversary emulation and stuff like that. Prior to this, I, I, I was a principal consultant and a senior consultant at a, a number of different consultancies doing offensive testing. And then prior to that, network engineer, system engineer background. Cool. Cool, guys. So yeah, so yeah, thanks for that introduction there to tease out, Justin. So for everyone listening, just I'm sure a lot of you have heard of Trusted Set. They're a big brand in the marketplace. I know Justin's involved with the marketing himself. David comes across very well, the, the founder of Trusted Set. Seen him on uh, CNBC a few times. And you, know, you guys have got a strong brand in the marketplace. Justin, I, I think you're very much living the dream. Let's say CTO, you're doing adversarial emulation work. You're doing research threats in the wild, APT threats. But one thing that kind of shocked me, when we were talking off air... Last week, you mentioned it was quite 
challenging for you to get into the industry? Because I can't really help juniors in my day job because all my demand in my client base is from the senior end of the market. I try and do a bit online and a bit for the community to help juniors. Can you talk a little bit about how you got in? Was it easy? Was it tough? When it got tough, how did you cope? And what kind of what learnings can the listeners take from your entry into InfoSec? Yeah, for sure. So I, I had been interested in hacking and computers and all that stuff for, for many years. And I was a systems engineer and then a network engineer. And during that time period, I got my OSCP, I got my CEH. I found myself applying at a lot of companies and they would say, you don't have any experience, we won't hire you. I was like, I'll try again. And yeah, I managed to find the right combination of right company at the right time. And it gave me a chance. And I got my first job at a company called Redspin doing just basic entry-level pen testing work. And I actually, I took a small pay cut to do that at the time, which was a big deal. And then it's paid off in the long run, but there's a there's a point in your career where I was a network engineer and I either could have went towards getting like a CCIE, that kind of path. And it was my last run at, I need to get into security these next couple of years. Mm. So I did a lot going to different conferences and trying to do some blogging on my own and just things like that. And it's part of it was luck. I always take the things I learned along the way. And I try to apply those that when I interview people that are junior or associates, you know, even if we're not hiring or they're not the best fit, trying to help go give them a direction. Things are definitely improving, but there's no, at back then there was no easy direct path. And then the, the funny thing is once you get one week of experience, places are, oh, you know what you're doing now, we'll hire you. So it's, a, it's definitely a problem. Yeah, yeah, no, there's, there's a few things I, I just want to dig into there. So you, I know there's people listening on this, listening in the audience now that are struggling to get at home. It must have, there must have been times when you doubted yourself, I would imagine, within that period. Yeah, for sure. And it's funny because I, this is something that doesn't quantify really well in an interview, but like I, I took my OSCP on my own. I passed it the first try. Like I, I was pretty good at the things that places wanted you to have to hire. And I know that I talked to lots of people and I coach lots of people who've taken the OSCP several times. And it's, it's just the, the, the way people measure new hires in the industry is just just rough. So if I was anybody out there, I wouldn't give up. I think that it's a lot easier now to put yourself out there on, on GitHub and just doing write-ups, showing the things that make you stand out in a crowd. Or you know, People are much more aware of those things now than they were in the past. Mm, definitely. And how much did the pay cut hurt? Was that quite painful? <laughs> it was at the time. It was always what I wanted to do, right? Like it was for me, it was I, I always wanted to hack. I, I Going back to even like in high school, I still stay in touch with counselors and teachers from that time period and they said but you always showed up and said one day you're going to be a computer hacker and they're like there's not really a job for that let's worry about getting you out of high school and that sort of thing mm -hmm. and i stay in touch with them now and it was funny and they're like wow you actually did that thing you said you were going to do so it was a long road but it's been worth it i love what i do um every yeah. day yeah good so just i just want to you mentioned blogging so when was what year was this when you when you broke in sorry if i'm making you show your age a bit my friend but just no <laughs> No, I, I'm trying to think now. But what, what, I'm th what I'm thinking is, is if you were doing b b blogging then, obviously building, I call it making the resume 3D, doing anything online, social media, blogging. Some people some people would consider that a new thing, but you know, obviously not. If you were blogging back then, you were obviously <laughs> doing stuff to add real strength and depth to your resume a long time ago then. Yeah, so I think it was like 2011, 2012, sometime in there. Cool. Cool. Yeah, so it's just trying to get things out there, even if it's something basic, like, hey, I tried a, I tried this tool 
or, you know, I gave it, I, I stood up a Windows VM and I tried this thing. Like the thing that people get hung up on in this industry is that they see, you know, the big shiny new blog post that some company puts out and then they want to measure themselves against that. But there's way more people who are interested in the basics, how to use some Linux command line tool, how to do some basic packet capture and analysis, stuff like that. So there's a lot of stuff that's accessible and interesting, a lot broader group than just the new flashy thing. Mm. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and I found if it's more raw and more natural and more real, I think people just prefer it. If it's like video content and it's just you holding the phone up or and it's not all fancy in the studio, I think sometimes that can just be more more beneficial to them. Again, it's just, I think it's just more more, more authentic. Um, but yeah, no, th- thank you for that, Justin. It's, it's really nice way to see a guy in your position now, Just because I don't just want to talk about the good times and the fun stuff and you're doing kind of all this, especially the research side of stuff that, that you're doing. It's all really cool stuff, but I want people to hear that th- these are dream jobs in dream locations. I personally think it's probably one of the best careers in the world and it's just, it, it's never going to be easy. And I think it's important just to, just to emphasize that because I know there's people at the, as I'm sure you do, uh, uh, buddy, there's, there's people at the junior end now that are, they find it tough, don't they? And it's just a case of being resilient and, and keeping going. And I think hearing these stories helps, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. I, I think that people forget that this, everyone's, all I want to do is hack all day. And there's definitely, there's pluses and minuses. So there's some stuff to talk about there, like how to maintain a career in this space over the long haul, just because so much changes and protecting yourself from burnout like travel, things like that. There's a lot of, there's a lot of things to navigate, but it is, it's still, you know, fulfilling and a, a good job for a lot of people. Yeah, definitely, mate. Definitely. I know you're personally involved with some of the hiring and, and, and trusted tech. If, I, if I'm a, if I'm a pen tester or a, a red teamer, if I've got an interview scheduled with you, mate, for next week, what should I be doing to impress you? Yeah, so I, I am probably a, a little bit different interview style than others. I like to just have a conversation a lot of times what impresses me is hey what's your favorite hack if you've done an experience if you've done this before what was some cool story obviously don't tell me client details or anything like that but Mm. what's some attack that got you excited if you're doing ir or something what's some malware that you encountered that was interesting as i like to just have an organic conversation around what piques your interest i can see where you're going from there if you're very junior maybe bring up the fact that you do a ctf and i would talk you through what ctf challenges you've done or what blogs you're reading things like that so i I always try to do less of the the technical deep dive and more of just trying to get where your mindset is where you're going where you want to be things like that it's you can always have people on the team run through some technical questions and have people just say hey if you don't know the answer be honest say you don't know but we're really interested in people that we're going to stick with they're going to evolve they're going to learn things like you can teach the technical stuff a lot of it is just the understanding if people have the, the drive to get where they need to be when you get farther up in your career obviously it, it's a little bit different but the the junior mid-level there's still a lot of drive to, to push boundaries and see where you want to learn where you want to go stuff like that are you looking at communication skills there are you looking at ability to articulate your, yourself in a, in, in a verbal form or just general kind of interpersonal skills or ability to connect what, what, what are you looking for there yeah so the, the thing that's probably a little bit different about the way I go at this is because I'm in the consulting space. So our output is always a report deliverable and then your ability to you know manage a client, have conversations with a client, discuss finding. So those the ability to have a conversation, the ability to talk through things comfortably and be articulate are very important with what I do. And if you're not comfortable with those, 
and you have the technical skills, we can definitely teach the consulting side and vice versa. So it's, it's basically just getting people comfortable because the, the thing that happens with us a lot of times is you're going to have to give people bad news about something you found and then help give them advice on how to make the situation better. Everybody is not always great at delivering bad news. And then the other piece that happens with this a lot of times is you'll explain a finding. You'll say, hey, we rated this a high or critical. And they'll say, we don't agree with you. And then you get in this whole debate thing, which might be uncomfortable for some people. But if you have a strong technical background and you kind of understand businesses and things like that, you can talk your way through it. But it's just, that's more of an experience piece. The beginning part is being able just to communicate with clients. Yeah, definitely. Because so at that point, you basically said, essentially, uh, I'm Mr. Klein, you, you, you've got to spend some money. And then if they're questioning, you, you, listen, you've got to be able to back it up to stay credible, I would, I would imagine. Yeah, that, the, can I, yeah sorry, like, go on, buddy. The, the worst thing you want to do is to let a client talk you into lowering the severity of finding yeah, 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 a lot yeah. of times it throws the whole report into yeah. question. Mm-hmm. So it's just being able to back that up on a technical one. And, and it might take a couple back and forth with the client to get them to understand, hey, based on our experience, we rate this as this. Your company is can do whatever with the report. That's the our output. You can accept the risk. You can say, hey, internally, we only see this as a, a low or whatever. And you say, based on what we know, what we see, we're rating at this. And then just building that you have the confidence and conveying that confidence to the client goes a really long way. De- definitely. I'm, I'm just thinking now, like, if someone's coming into my business and saying that, I've got to take something out of a production environment or have some downtime and spend a load of money and then they just change their mind in two or three minutes. He's <laughs> just going to, let's say, he's going to probably ruin, it's going to ruin the relationship. So I completely get, get that. And do you know what? Do you know what I've always wondered? I've had this conversation with kind of people at your level before, Justin, and I've always thought like, I might even ask you last week, but like when someone spent like half a million or hundreds of thousands on an EDR and you and your guys just blast through it like how do you have that conversation especially if it's a brand new piece of purchase like how does that go down (laughs) that is a really really interesting conversation that we have because on one hand so here's the problem you hired us to emulate an APT or whatever to get in get access and do a thing if I fail because all of your controls work as a client, you're like, oh, that that firm might not be pretty good. <laughs> now, mm. if I get in and break all of your controls, you're like, oh, that vendor who I bought the EDR from isn't very good. <laughs> so mm. there's a really fine line between the two. And what we run into a lot is we have a research team. We have a lot of people that do R&D on how to bypass products and understand how to kind of work where they're not and things like that is explaining to clients that you're, you're always going to have gaps in these tools. We know where they are. If you know where they are, then you can use compensating controls, extra detections, things like that. So we try to make sure to smooth things over with clients to make sure that they understand that. So a, a common occurrence might be, or this used to be more common, is I send you a macro document, you run the macro document, and it doesn't get detected. The client's first reaction is, I'm going to take this macro document to our EDR vendor. The EDR vendor will say, okay, they'll write a detection for that exact variant of the document we sent them. Then we come back and run a slightly different variant and it works. So it highlights the fact that you need like layered controls, simply counting using your EDR vendor for 100% of your coverage just doesn't going to work. So Hmm. once companies understand that, hey, like the EDR gives me 85% coverage, uh, there's going to be some gaps understanding what those are and then helping them maneuver into a better place makes yeah, that cool. work 
Yeah, yeah, defence in depth mentality, yeah? <laughs> yeah, cool. Thank you, mate. Very good detailed answer. So, Justin, on the just next question I've got. So, we've, we've talked a bit about what, what, what we can do, what I can do to impress you in an interview. What, what should I not do? So, I've managed to I've managed to get to interview stage. What should I not do? But another thing I just want to ask is a lot of people will struggle in the application process and I think you're a really good person to answer this because I know with the strength of your brand in the marketplace I know and I've spoke to you about it before so I, I definitely know that you get a lot of inbound attraction when you put up when you uh, want to hire so how would I make myself stand out in the application process how would I get to interview stage and what should I not do when I get there <laughs> <laughs> so I'll start with the interview stage first so the one thing that I see lots of people try to do and it's really annoying is they try to hack us or send us a malicious document as like oh a, my. as like a thing to stand out. Now I, I get it, right? Like I love hacking, I love cool things. Just there's a time and a place and it never lands the way people think it's going to land with us. Um so that is one thing I would avoid. Like, there's lots of things that will impress me with technical skills, but you trying to send us some malicious document or trying to break into our website outside of some sort of bug bounty thing that might be going on is the one thing I've run into numerous times, and it, it has not worked yet, or to a point where we've been like, oh, we're going to hire that person. No, no, I, yeah, I, yeah, I'm actually a little bit taken back that people do that to you when they're applying for a job, but yeah, I would... Uh... I can see why that might. I see why that might annoy you, mate. <laughs> it's it's common enough that I figured I'd mention it on the yeah, standing yeah, yeah, out uh, with a resume. We get we'll post a, a fantastic position, and we might get a thousand resumes with a junior or mid level. I'm generally looking. People will list their experience, where they work, things like that. Certs. I'm always interested to see if they list a GitHub link, a personal blog link. Those are two go tos. And more, if there's somebody who has no experience, no prior job in InfoSec, like we get this a lot, the position I was in, right? I was a network engineer. I want my first job. I send it in say, hey, I want to be a pen tester. And I look at your resume and maybe there's a cert on there that's a, something about security, but there's nothing else security related. I, I would, today, I would say maybe you should link a blog, maybe link your what you've done in CTFs, just something to give me a little bit of context to think that you didn't ex like accidentally apply for a security job as a network administrator, that mm. sort of thing. Mm. As you start to move up, I'm always looking for like an OSCP, any entry level or mid-level certs go a long way, especially if you have no actual pen testing experience. Our re one requirement or normal requirement that moves resumes up is, you know, hey, you have no, no prior pen test experience, but you went out of your way and got an OSCP is something that will move it to the top to at least get you a, a phone interview. So that's a big thing for us. It's, it's very hard to, I would love to talk to a thousand people and get everybody's backstory and everything like that. But it's, it, it just isn't practical from a time perspective. I, I wish it was. We reply to as many as we can, but it, it's gotta, just, just gotta, you gotta give a little bit of something to move it to the next step. Yeah, no, definitely. Thanks, Justin. And I think as well, just so people get a handle on the volume, you have got to be, you, you, you've got to be different. If you've got a thousand applications, and I always say stuff like post stuff in or just heavy amounts of personalization. We live in the age of the internet. It's super easy as long as you're willing to spend the time to, to really personalize something. So I just think really polite, really persistent and some personalization in there kind of goes a long way and then everything you've said about you know making sure that your your, your resume fits the fits the roles and, um, and stuff like that so are you going to say something yeah. different 
Yeah. yeah, I was just going to add that uh, I know that there's a lot of positions that may or may not want cover letters, entry level and things like that, where you don't have the experience, but you are trying to articulate, hey, I've, you know, I'm on Twitter and I'm in these different places. I'm in these discords. I watch these YouTube videos on reversing, things like that. The entry level jobs go really well with a letter like that because you can, you get your chance to say things to me that you might not get to do to an interview and you might not make it to that group. And so I think there's a really, I don't, everybody doesn't need a cover letter or anything like that. And I know places, some places frown on them, but there's definitely a spot at the beginning of your career where I think that would go a long way to get you your initial interview. Mm. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I agree. And I think as well, if you think about uh, the, the report on, on a pen test, the exec uh, summary is vital. So if you've got the ability to summarize a document and put it in a succinct manner in a professional way and you, you come across well in a written format i suppose that kind of bodes well for for all that as well doesn't it yeah for sure the the output of consulting work is always going to be a, a written report so as much as you can try to templatize some finding there's always going to be executive summaries and um, walkthroughs and things like that where mm. writing skills do come into play cool cool Okay, mate, I'm just going to jump on something here, a bit, bit more low level, because those two words, adversary, emulation, that are on your LinkedIn profile, they excite me, by the way, and they excite a lot of people. I'm sure they excite you as well. And I think there's actually probably certain, and there's, there'll be certain stuff you can and can't say. Can you tell us about anything really cool that's gone on in the labs lately, to, where you've really had something that's different or shocking or different things that have gone on, or just anything where we could maybe grab some kind of quick learnings from you at the same time? Yeah, we've, so we've done a lot um, in the Okta space. Um, Adam Chester, one of our consultants from the UK, has done a lot of, of pivoting off of Okta, um, using Okta in ways that people didn't think were possible for social engineering and things like that. Um, we're, we're very heavy into trying to utilize products and services that clients legitimately use, whether that be for... Um, C2 communication channels, so ways that the malware and implants we use that clients can talk back out near kind of what clients are using. So we're, we're very heavily invested in that side of the house. Um, anything, if, if a client uses Azure and O365 and maybe they use some different SaaS product, we would try to sign up for a trial of that SaaS product and kind of leverage that in the environment. Because the, the one thing okay. we're trying to do these days is blend as much as possible. There's still... There's such a wide range of companies out there with different levels of maturity, but our most focused adversarial simulation style attacks are on very mature clients that take every bit of effort we have, every bit of R&D to get in, maintain access, and go after goals. And then we kind of, you know, we do a lot these days with going after their development pipelines. A big ask these days is clients saying, hey, can you push your code into production in our environment without getting detected and we've done that for some very large um, software development companies uh, mm. and with successfully um, mm. and that's been a, a big lead because it used to be can you get domain admin can you steal some phi can you get to this database server but clients are coming back with much more complicated goals that are very business focused and you spend a lot of time understanding how their development business works how to get things done more so than any other time in the past Okay, just a quick one. So they're asking to simulate different. Is that because they're seeing different threats in the wild, so they want a different sort of simulation, or is that because they're just seeing different things in the build phase, or why do you think that's evolved? Yeah, so I think you see events. You'll see MGM got hacked. Mm -hmm. um, you saw SolarWinds got hacked. Those things drive a lot of clients to say, "Hey, we want to do that thing 
and we want to see if that's possible in our environment. And the, the funny thing is when they come and have that conversation, clients will say, if we really care about this APT group, and I'll say, okay, cool. Based on the threat intel that we see right now, they break into XYZ appliance, and then they move laterally off of that. And the client will be will come back and say, we don't have that appliance. And I'll say, okay, now we're going to have to like freestyle this attack a little bit and not stay one-to-one. So there's a big debate around emulation versus simulation. So usually emulation is like one-to-one replaying attacks from an APT group. Simulation is taking a little bit more freeform with that. So we find ourselves playing into the simulation space more where we say, hey, we know that you don't have this appliance, but you have something similar. Let's go after that and move in the environment. So it's very hard. Companies will read an APT report. The APT report might be six months, 12 months old. If mm-hmm. they're doing an okay job, they probably patched that thing by now. So you just have to end up coaching clients a little bit and saying, okay, what is in the same realm of this? What did they get to and accomplish? And what are some other viable paths in between? And that's just a lot of just looking at CTI and understanding where, you know, companies of different maturity levels sit and helping them get the most value out of an assessment. It really comes down to what they want to know and what they want to learn, right? Everybody's concerned about ransomware these days, but all those steps in the middle are really where they're going to learn a lot of things. How did they escalate privileges? How did they get to a bunch of machines? How did they disable a backup? Things like that. So we try to we try to distill those away from, hey, they just use this really specific technique into, yeah, we can cover that, but there's three or four other techniques in that area that are similar that still might work in your environment. Let's talk about those. Mm. Yeah, cool, mate. Th- thanks, by the way, mate. Wicked answer. And so, so, so from what you just said, you, you are you reference the fact that a certain APT group is moving laterally, so you're basically studying APT group attack paths, probably reverse engineering them, and then using that to enhance... The service you can provide where, where would you study that what resources would you use to to grab that kind of info just in yeah so publicly available sources are out there a lot of a lot of edr vendors these days use their cti as a marketing wing so they publish full reports a lot of the breaking events come out on linkedin they come out on twitter so we do a good job aggregating all of those into what's happening and then the other thing that we tend to pull in is like emerging tools emerging things a red team red teamer or a company might release a new tool set they might release a blog post on new offensive technique so we funnel all of those things together and say we can recombine this new blog technique with this thing that actually happened in the wild to give it a little bit more life to make it viable on engagement so wow. it's a full-time thing to stay on top mm-hmm. of all the cti however you will see a lot of similarities between attack chains. Yeah, cool. Thank you, mate. And this signing up for a free trial play, is that to grab some credentials off a target so you can have a look inside and familiarise yourself with the environment? Is that what that's all about? You know, oh, targeting clients with that? Yeah, when you ask for a free... I think you said you asked for a free trial on some SaaS products. So oh, yeah, you, yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, so, so one of the big problems right now in the cloud world is that the cloud providers use the same top level domain. So if you were ABC cloud provider, you might let me set up justinco.abccloud.com. If I can do that with a free trial and I can make the name very similar to a client, um, it's often hard for them to distinguish between the two. If I use it to say they use a file transfer service like Box or Dropbox or OneDrive, if I can make a domain 
one step up looks like them, it's very hard for them to tell that I'm offloading a bunch of files to that. It just blends in. So we make strides to figure out what companies have trial accounts, developer accounts, things like that, that let me look very similar to what's happening in the environment out in the cloud. Cool. Thank you, mate. Really good detailed info there, mate. Appreciate that. And just if I'm, if I'm, say I've been doing kind of web app mobile, some, some AD stuff, and I'm pen testing in a commercial environment, I really want to transition into, into red teaming, full chain. Yeah. I see a lot of people want to go that route, and I think it, it's just a different mentality with the pen testing side, you tend to be successful a lot. Getting caught probably won't ruin your day. It might, they might boot you out. You might start back where you go, but it's just understanding that you're not always going to win on the red teaming side. Uh, you may put two weeks in or research something for several days and not get anywhere. To make the jump, there's some decent red teaming classes out there now. Uh, CRTO, yeah. there's Sector 7, and a, uh, some others have malware writing courses and things like that. It's definitely something that it, it's hard to do red teaming and have it be an eight to five, nine to five job now because things are moving very quickly with EDR vendors and things like that. You might have a payload that works this week, ready to go next week, and then Monday morning, it no longer works anymore. So the the rate of adoption and change is a lot quicker. So you just have to be ready for that Just and learn how to fail gracefully. It's not, yeah. there are definitely <laughs> much higher highs and much lower lows on the red teaming side than I ever would pen testing. Okay. I always used to, the time it took me to get domain admin and get to my goals on pen testing versus this, it's just, it's just a little bit different mentality. But it's still rewarding, it's still accessible, like we still need tons of people. It's just, there's definitely a class of clients on the red teaming side that will humble you. You haven't been humbled before. <laughs> yeah, if you're doing that kind of work, their, their security postures must be absolutely seriously formidable because otherwise the game's going to be up in, in five minutes flat if, if, if it was otherwise, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's definitely something that people are like. I've, I've red teamed and worked with people long enough now where it used to be easy, quote unquote, for them, and as it's got harder over time. They have a lot of self-doubt, like, am I still good? What's happening here? This is supposed to be happening because you're making the clients get better. So then you're trying to figure out how to make sure that you're still giving them value. I have a really good example. We have a particular client that we do zero notice engagements with or did over a really long period of time. Once a quarter, we would try to break in. And there was quarters where they would, we would not get a foothold. We would not get anywhere. And they would clap on the phone and things like that. And then we would come back and we would try harder and come up with something. And what we, we realized after doing this for a bunch of quarters is as long as we're finding ways to provide value and give them new ideas to hunt for or build detections for in their environment, it's a win. And once we realized that, like we would try more off the wall things. Like we were doing SMS phishing six or seven years ago before a lot of people were, we were doing some stuff with Microsoft email encryption before others were. So we were trying things and sometimes the attacks would partially work. We get some level of access. The engagement might end. Other times, we were very successful. But as long as the client learned something new and improved because of it, it was a was a win for everybody. Yeah, thanks. Do you, do you think as well? Do you think it's worth having a, just a quick conversation about the reality of red team? Like you mentioned, there you've got to be. I think you said passionate, obsessed, or you've got to be really, basically, really on point these days because the EDR vendor companies are just uh, are just so on it. But 
I know from conversations I have every day what some of the realities of being on a red team engagement are like. It's not all popping shells and so on and so forth. But could you basically maybe let the listeners and the audience know a bit of the reality of being on a red team engagement for maybe a number of months? Yeah, yeah. So it's it, it's definitely something I've heard a lot about this a while ago because people struggle with this. You come from pen testing, you're used to very quickly moving off a system and moving to other ones. Getting comfortable with spending two, three, four, five days reading wikis, reading an internal GitHub or GitLab server for a company, building an attack plan is something that people are really struggle with because they're used to saying, hey, I'm trying to get some instant value here, I'm gonna go hack everything. Being able to read documentation at a client for days at a time to come up with a really solid attack plan is something people really struggle with. And it's one of the hardest changes to make. The other piece is that you're essentially a malware developer when in the past you could just download the latest thing from GitHub and be successful. Those days are few and far between with the way that EDR is. Getting comfortable with compilers, being able to modify some C code, being able to modify whatever the language is that everybody likes today, whether it be NIM or Go. You don't have to be the world's best programmer. You can use ChatGPT to get you there and use everything else, but it it's definitely requiring development that didn't used to exist. And I see this crop up a lot with companies that build internal red teams, not on the consulting side. Say a medium-sized bank says, we want to build a red team, and they come to us for kind of guidance and help and we say okay cool you hire some red teamers in the first couple years are fairly easy and we're like what's your long-term plan for research and development you guys are here you're going to need to keep evolving your tooling and they say oh we don't really have a plan thankfully there's some products out there now and some companies that sell like intermediate red team toolkits there's outflank and just a handful of other companies md and things like that sell either full implants or kind of mid-level toolkits to kind of take some of that R&D off of you. Um, but that's a newer thing that's popped up uh, just because so much of this job is now research and development. Yeah, cool. MD set UK guys, yeah? And yep. um, I'm going to get on some other questions in the mix. I want to talk about some kind of stuff to help people with the hiring stuff. But this bit that we're on now, that, like, this is pretty cool and it's pretty fascinating. What, would you ever stick a send or EDR in a in a lab and just basically rip it to pieces, reverse engineer it and master it like that would be good for my self-development if I'm listening now. Yeah, so there's some products that are fairly accessible from that side of the house, right? You can, on the sim side, like spinning up Splunk and things like that are fairly accessible. You can get a free trial of Elastic EDR. You can get a free trial of Microsoft Defender. The thing that a lot of people in pen testing used to make the mistake of is not really understand under the hood how tools fully work now with EDR and SIMS and the ability to spin up VMs fairly easily on normal workstation you can really flush out those tools and say hey when I do this PS exec tool it's creating a file share over here first and copying a file over things like that understanding how all of your techniques work under the hood just because the job ends up being uh, um, an EDR company spent a bunch of money writing signatures for specific tools, how can how do you think that they wrote those signatures, and then how can you get around them? Or based on your prior experience, maybe working as an admin or a sysadmin, you know that 
this particular software causes a lot of false positives with EDR, maybe I can make my offensive tooling look like the software that was very high in false positives because I know that the company's likely to exempt this process name or this file path or things like that. So it, it definitely, being able to dig into how your offensive tools work, how the defensive tools work from a signature and detection side and kind of merge those two pieces and then SIM and EDR make that whole thing glued together for letting you test a hypothesis and, and play it out. Yeah, wicked, mate. That, thanks, buddy. Yeah, I just think to, like I, said, I, I know it's just so vital to have that understanding of both blue and red team sides. When, whenever I hear someone who's just too obsessed with the with the red team side, or they don't want to look at anything blue t- blue team related. It's always a bit of a, a red flag because you've got to you've got to understand both sides to stay stealthy and and then have the the, the full picture, haven't you? Yeah, there's no way to exist these days without understanding how defense works. Because when I was talking about before how, let's say, EDR fills 80-90% of your coverage, that remaining 10% is usually custom detections, in-house things, application control, stuff like that. You really need to understand the defensive mindset because that's where you're going to survive beating out how other people write detections, how other people secure things, just administrative processes and things like that. Cool, cool. Thank you, mate. Uh, certifications, do you care about them? If you do, which ones do you care about? I'm always big on OSCP. I know that the last couple of years, the pricing went up and people are less friendly towards it. The reason that I was always a big fan of OSCP is because it did have a practical at the end. I know the practical is miserable for a lot of people, and I know that today with the webcam on and just... The, the stress of trying to take a 24-hour exam it is a lot. I always prefer that because I know that you've had to put that time in. I, a lot of times with the, I'm just going to answer some theory questions, it, it's hard to judge what somebody knows. But OSCP is still my go-to. The Rasta Mouse CRTO class is very good as well. I've used capture the flag related things as a stopgap if somebody didn't want to go down the certification route. Just because the capture the flag has got so much better in the past those environments used to be very game-like. Now they do a pretty good job having ones that are set up with that directory and they're set up similar to environments that you might encounter in the day-to-day job. Those are my kind of go-to. I don't have a lot of stock in some of the certified ethical hacker and things like that. Not that it's taking anything away from you to have it. I know for some U.S. government jobs and things like that, you need those. It's just, those are, I memorize the test questions kind of thing. Anything where you can see practical hands-on is always a big win for me. Yeah, no, thank you, mate. Raster Mouse, that's getting some serious... In conversations I'm having with technical hiring managers offline at the minute, that, that Raster Mouse is getting some seriously good good mentions. Everyone seems to lo- love what he's doing. Yeah, uh, for sure. That's yeah. one of the most realistic classes out there for what happens yeah. on a, a day-to-day yeah. basis, isn't it? Cool. Cool, man. Um, online learning resources, it's great because there's, there's loads out there. I, Sometimes I worry it's that noisy that it's where's best to start, where's best to focus your time and energy. I'd love to know what learning resources have the most positive impact on your career. Also, just in what learning resources you've tapped into over the years when it comes to your, your, your red team skills. Yeah, so for me, like these days, a lot of times it's just other companies' red team blogs because people publish interesting things. Like I said, MDSEC before, but... Spectre Ops, IBM X-Force. I try to follow the companies I know that do the work. The problem I've run into a lot of times with um, personal blogs about red teaming is people may or may not do some of this as a day job. So they don't caveat a blog or something that they write with. This is 
theoretical, this may or may not work based on my experience. Um, so I try to, depending on where I'm going and trying to learn. Um, I, I think a, a lot of this is just like you mentioned before, learning by doing. So if you can stand up a couple of VMs and use Elastic's free version of their EDR product and just mess around with some tools, that's where a lot of like learning happens because you think a tool is just going to run the first time and it might fail. Getting to the underlying technique is a lot more valuable because the, on the pen test side, you see this a lot. Like I tried to do XYZ attack, I ran the tool and it didn't work, I moved on. Maybe just the tool you ran doesn't work because of some condition, but the underlying technique is still there. And knowing when to dig into that is a big piece. But for me, it's always going to be blogs. And then after that, I spend a lot of time watching malware analysis videos. OA Labs, There's a they have a Patreon, they have a Discord and things like that. I think I've, that's where I've, my focus is these days. It's on the reverse engineering side. So anytime somebody talks about IDA, Binary Ninja, just different write-ups on that stuff, because it's the... The one thing about this space that's very interesting is you can go watch a reverse engineering video, get to the end of it and be like, I am an expert. I can go reverse the same malware sample, no problem. You get a slightly different version of that malware sample and you're like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Everything looks different. I think the, the biggest ongoing learning experience for me has been just learning malware analysis because it has ties back to everything else we do. So that's where I always try to push the red team folks that I know towards. And on the class side for that, Sector 7 has classes on how to write malware and understand how it works. Malware Dev Academy has some classes and things like that are self-paced. I think that the way things are going with EDR, that, that you'll get the most return out of the malware analysis, understanding that piece. Okay, okay. Wicked. Thank you, Mesh. Just, just to summarize that, Raster Mouse, Banging job on the certifications, MD Second Spectre Ops for looking at the blogs. When it comes to learning, the phrase I've heard a lot is hands on keyboard, and that's what you just said then. It's actually doing is the is the best way to learn. And I think you touched upon you said don't have a quick look around and or run at all and think it the environment's fine when it's not. And I suppose that's the hacker mindset piece, it's that real kind of determination to get under the skin of the environment and see what's going on. Malware analysis, YouTube videos. Six or seven for malware and Ole Labs, yeah? Yep. Cool. Yeah. We'll get some stuff in the show notes. That's a lot to remember, but it's but it's good. Which I don't know if you I don't know if you if it's a book, I know these days a lot of people listen to audios or, or used to, uh, not so much reading hardback books anymore, but which book or pod or audio has had the most positive effect on your career growth or your self development so far, buddy? Sure. That's a tough one. If I was on video, I would show you that my bookshelf behind me have... <laughs> oh, I've seen have, it. I've seen that. <laughs> yeah, I have, have probably 20, 20 feet of books. Yeah. I don't have... I've read a lot of books. The one book I really like is The Art of Software Security Assessment. Okay. That was a really good book. And I, I'll say that a little bit different vein is the takedown book which is about kevin mitnick and his kind of journey that was the book i read many years ago and i at that point i knew i wanted to do this as a job so that book was one of the ones that pushed me in this direction and then technical books is always going to be the artist software security assessment and then after that i'm not really sure the you eventually get to a point where a lot of books have a lot of overlap with each other so you're like skimming the book to get the the 10 or 15 percent that wasn't covered in some other book and um, sort of mentors, just an, uh, I believe having a mentor is pretty key. It can have a, a, a profound, you know, very strong effect on, on your self development. 
who's been your mentor? And if I'm listening now or I'm listening to the podcast when it goes out over the next couple of weeks on, on all the channels, Spotify, YouTube, Apple Pods, who, if I'm listening and I don't have a mentor, how can I get one? Who's been your mentor? And any advice on how to get one? Sorry, mate, really long question there. No, it's a, a good one. Um, I, my my mentor years ago was it was really just Dave Kennedy and I had gone back and forth a lot just on just tools and techniques and things like that. And he's helped me over the years. Now where I'm at, I don't think I have a single mentor. I think that I have a lot of conversations with the different red teamers on my team and the research people on my team and take different bits and pieces from them, just the different perspectives about where things are going. As for finding one, reaching out to people on LinkedIn and, and Twitter and things like that, it's good to make connections there. Now that conferences are back and people are starting to go places again after COVID, so many conferences to have a conversation with somebody. Everybody's very approachable, at least as far as my experience has been. Everybody's very approachable in this industry. It, it doesn't, it just asking somebody for some advice or career advice and things like that, or just having back and forth once in a while is something that a lot of people are open to. No, no, definitely. And earlier early on today, just then I did a pod with, with Joe Hudson from, from TCM. We were talking about the value of mentors. And I said, you could be following someone's YouTube channel, and that could be a mentor. You could be watching uh, a guy or girl on Twitch once a week, and that could be a mentor. You could have a, a, a physical mentor in real life. So I think these days, you can almost have take different bits from different people and have virtual mentors through online activity and, and kind of the more traditional mentors, as you've described, that we think of there. It's not a bad way of looking at it because I think for some people, it will be hard to find the physical mentor, but the virtual one's doable for everyone, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think that a lot of the platforms, like I, I've been always really big on Twitter just because it lets you interact with different groups of people and see what's out there. And there's other like Mastodon and things like that, but you get to see a lot of people who are very well experienced, give their views the one thing for me, and this is an interesting revelation over time, was there's a lot of people in this industry that kind of talk about, that may promote themselves as experts in a space or things like that, may have not done this in a very long time. And you see that over the time of just these different social media platforms, you just see what people are good at or not good at. So you have to take what everybody says with a little bit of grain of salt and be a little bit skeptical and say, hey, okay, three or four people on this particular topic kind of agree and then form your opinions. I, I would always be hesitant to say that anybody is the single formative person on, on a broad variety of topics. I think a lot of people in this space got very good at one or two things and then suddenly said, hey, I'm the person of all things InfoSec, and I think they forget a lot about that. So something just to, while you're following different people and watching different YouTube streams, is just get a healthy group of different people with different backgrounds or how they got to that position and kind of merge all their views together. Yeah, no, thank you, mate. Very, very detailed. Moving on to the to the um, to the next question. I think if we go to the top of this show, mindset at the start would have been vital for you. Resilience, persistence, um, keeping your mental health in, in in good working order. I know, especially on the red team side, like like you said, there's massive ups and downs, there's good days and bad days. I know what trusted sec I've got going on at the minute is cool, but I'm imagining. There are some bad days sometimes. What do you do when there's a bad day? How do you cope with it? If, how do you cope with pressure and stress? And also, that I'm asking for kind of myself, like at the minute, like we, we've got a lot going on. And I know people listening will have a lot going on. And it's just like, I'd be interested to know, yeah, different coping mechanisms you've got or different advice you, you would give in uh, on that. 
Yeah, my, my biggest one, and I tell people this all the time, is you need to find a hobby outside of InfoSec. If you're, if you're younger, you're in your teens, early 20s, it's very easy to make, say, I want to do hacking, I'm going to hack eight hours a day, and I'm going to hack eight hours a night, and that's my life. And, it, and you can do that. You can do that maybe all through your 20s, maybe even part of your 30s. But eventually you get to a point where that is just not sustainable. And there's two reasons it's not sustainable. One, because you might be in a different place in life. Um, but the other one is just, it just takes a toll on like you, you just can't, you can't go at that speed forever. You'll be comparing yourself to other people around you. And just, it's a lot of like self-doubt and things like that. So being able to have a strong hobby outside of this, it could be video games. It could be, I'm into race cars. It could be photography, whatever it's just something to step away and really just say, Hey, like I, I'm going to, I'm going to take a break. And then just, just knowing, I don't know that the thing that I see a lot of people with today in the red teaming place, is just, they're just struggling with trying to keep up. So you just have to step back and go, what from eight to five do we do? What pieces of that am I good at? So when we were talking about CTI, like there's a fire hose of CTI and there's a fire hose of new techniques, just being able to compartmentalize what are the little bit of pieces here and there that will make me better in the things I do the most at work. If you're the if you're a red teamer and spend a lot of time fishing and getting initial access, what can I distill to focus on that? Because if you say, I'm going to try to keep up with all things in post and all things offense, that's just another path to burnout. Trying to get people to, to realize, hey, if I'm going to, what am I getting out of my investment and research time in the future is, is something that, that you need to build a sense of. Because early in your career, like I'm going to learn everything and I'm going to do everything. I'm going to be the best at everything. And, and that gets you pretty far. But again, you're going to do this through your 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever. You have to realize what you're doing every day and focus on how to get better at those particular things. And then make sure you have a way to escape work, live somewhat of a normal life, right? I still will do research at nights and weekends, but I definitely don't spend Friday night from 5 p.m. until Sunday night at 4 a.m. hacking like I used to. Maybe I spend part of the day Saturday and things like that. Yeah. And actually, I think we're more aware these days as well, mate. It's like David, like in recruitment, it was like it was like work hard, play hard environment. And I think we've all got a little bit wise to it now, and we're all more aware of how our minds work and a bit of balance here and there. But uh, and you know what you said there as well about, about focusing on one area. Pen testing is such a broad term, isn't it? So it's so naturally, like you say, if you try and master everything, you're probably going to spread yourself too thin. It's probably worth looking at what a what you're most passionate about, and b probably what's most commercially viable and having some balance in the middle would that be a good approach to picking which areas to to, to to focus on would you say yeah yeah we're you and i were prepping a little bit for this we're talking about like directions and things like that and if you look at where things are today and where they're going we're talking about how learning azure or learning aws mm. companies are going to keep using those and it's going to keep growing over the coming years today you could have a job where all you do is web app security and that's cool or all you do is mobile security maybe you do internal external pen tests so it it, it figure out what you're good at and figure out where things are going. Like maybe I wouldn't become the mainframe security guy today. Um, they're still out there. That's a you know diminishing thing. Uh, so just you know make keeping keeping yourself up with the trends and where you see things going. Also playing to your skill set. Right. Some people are obviously better at web apps. Some people are better at reverse engineering malware. Just kind of you know fitting in. Cool. Cool, mate. Okay, Matt, I was going to ask you one more question. Do a quick, take a quick couple of questions if, if that's all right with you. But I just wanted to say, I just wanted to ask you on the research side of things. I just think research such a cool job because 
very interesting while simultaneously enhancing your self-development. What, 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 re- what has research taught you lately that we could all surprise you? Or what, as a listener, what research have you done where I can learn something from you right now? The, the, the one thing that everybody needs to realize in, about InfoSec research is don't assume that somebody else has already done or looked at whatever the thing it is that you're trying to do as basic as you think it is we've been writing exploits and we've been like researching different areas and we're like oh yeah somebody must have done this ten thousand times and there's no way that this basic thing is still in there that is the one thing that i see everybody bite themselves with by accident and it's very it this comes down to if you want to learn how to to break something read the manual read the msdn read all the documents understand how it's supposed to work and usually through that you'll be like that's weird it does this function that by default and why would it do that and then chase things down from there but i've seen so many people just miss some really novel research because they've just said oh here's a good one uh, a few years ago there was a citrix netscaler exploit and if you would have asked a CISO or you would have asked sysadmins you're like what's your external footprint look like and they say oh it's all locked down all we have is these citrix netscalers they've been solid for years once that one exploit hit the, the internet the following several years there was many more exploits for Netscaler because people were finally looking at it. But previous to that, people had just assumed, you know, this was an accepted practice. This was out there on the internet. It was secure. So that that's my biggest takeaway for anybody researching is just don't assume anybody else has already been there. Yeah, you can Google around a little bit and get some just see, but there's so many bugs and problems that people just gloss over because they're like, there's not a chance. I'm not going to waste five minutes to look at this thing. Yeah, no, definitely. Just, just, does that relate to that when, when Move It came out and people thought they weren't affected and then later down the line, I've heard different people after the capital push their end clients and ask different probing questions because they think they weren't affected by Move It, but then if you look here and look there, they actually were. Is, it, is that kind of a, is that a relatable situation? Yeah, and I think it, yeah. it's also more relatable in the fact that Move It, so if you look at Move It and you look at the past couple of years, Move It's in a genre of software that are, designed to be on the edge of your network and upload and download files. If you look back at the past year or so vulnerabilities, that's not the only software vendor that's happened to that had the exact same design software, right? People went down the list and basically said, oh, look, Movit has an issue. Okay, what's their next best competitor? Let's look at the code there. Found a bunch more bugs. So you saw this happen, let's say, the past four or five years with VPN appliances as well. People assumed that VPN appliances were secure, Netscalers were secure, these file transfer software things were secure because they're all on the edge. You could just go down the list of looking at CVs and vulnerabilities that people have been proving that wrong month over month. So basically what it took was somebody finds a bug and move it, and then everybody said, oh, if they have a problem, then all these other ones that maybe are smaller size companies that make the same software might have similar bug problems, then you see a... A, a snowball effect of problems happening. That, that's how the industry kind of works. Somebody will say, find something, and then everybody will jump into that arena and then find a whole bunch of similar bugs in different products. Cool. Cool. Thank you, mate. Is there anything else I should have asked you just in that I haven't? Or do you think we're, do you think we're about, about good? Yeah, I, think, I think we hit everything. We'll probably take a couple <laughs> questions. Cool. Yeah, has anyone got any, any questions at all? Any questions? Career development, red team, low level, high level? No worries. No worries. And 
Yeah, no, definitely. Just in th- thanks for that, mate. And listen, it was it was great, man. And I love hearing what you're doing now. But I love hearing how hard you found it to get in. It was really poignant last week. I'd come off that LinkedIn live, and we did a Q and A at the end. There was loads of uh, there was quite a lot of juniors in there, and it was like really pulling at the heartstrings because they were like it really finding it tough. And I bounced off that LinkedIn live, and I jumped on with you. And then I think you just, I don't know how we got talking about it. You were like, yeah, listen, I found it really. And then to hear that you took two years to get in, I just think there'll be a lot of people now that are maybe six, eight, nine, ten, twelve months in that are struggling. And then they hear that you are where you are today, and you took two years to get your lucky break. I just think that'll be I think that'll keep a lot of people going and, and, and inspire them, mate. So thank you for that, buddy. And if you enjoyed that, buddy, we'll get it on the we'll get it out on the uh, the Spotify, YouTube, and stuff like that. And I'll, uh, I'll I'll send the recording over to you, mate, when it's all all ready. Sounds good. All right, Justin. See you soon, mate. Cheers, buddy. Right, Bye, thank you, everybody. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Have a good night. Thank you, mate.